Ulysses and Diomedes, they're here, twinned in a single flame of fire, a single tongue of fire, in the eighth of the Malabolgia that make up the giant landscape of fraud in the eighth circle of Dante's Inferno. Hi, I'm Mark Scarborough. This is the podcast, Walking with Dante. If those numbers mean nothing to you, you might want to go back and figure out where we are in this slow walk across Inferno part of Dante's masterpiece, the first canticle of Dante's masterpiece comedy. If you're listening to the podcast in real time, then you know where we are and you know what's happened. Virgil has introduced us to Ulysses and his companion Diomedes, and Virgil has given an explanation for why they're in hell. (laughs) Too bad it's not going to pan out as the correct explanation for why they're in hell, but okay, We'll take it right now for what it is. We'll take it as it is and as it comes. And Virgil's introduced them. And now we come to a passage, lines 64 through 84 of Canto 26, in which neither Ulysses nor Diomedes will be present, although they're clearly standing right there in their tongue of fire. But rather, we have a conversation between Virgil and Dante before we get to the main fireworks. So here's the conversation. If they were able to speak in those flames, Master, I plead with you a lot to make it so, and even plead again by pleading it a thousandfold. Don't make me wait here a bit until the flame gets closer to us. You see how I lean out with desire toward them. And he to me, your prayer is loaded with value. Thus I accede to it. But see that your tongue is bridled. Let me do the talking. I understand exactly what you want. Still, because they're Greeks... They might be scornful of what you might say. When the flame got close enough, where it seemed to my guide the right time and place, I heard him speak in this manner. Oh, you, who are actually two inside one fire, if I merited anything from you both while I lived, if I merited anything from you, whether great or small, when in the world above I wrote my high verses... Then hang back here for a moment, and one of you tell where, lost by his own hand, he met his death. That's the intro to finally Ulysses' speech, which we'll get to in the next several episodes of the podcast, Walking with Dante. Let's take this passage here for what it is. I want to say a couple things about the passage, about some curiosities in the passage, some interpretive knots in it, as we always do. I want to talk about the commentary tradition on this passage. It is long and in some ways excessive, and I want to tell you why. And then I want to pull back out from that to a bit of modern literary criticism and this passage. So let's get to it. You remember last time I told you that we had to address the fact that the pilgrim is so eager. And Dante the Pilgrim is yet more eager here. How could he get more eager than almost falling into the pit? Well, here, this bit, if they were able to speak in those flames, Master, I plead with you a lot to make it so. And even plead again, replead in the Florentine. I replead by pleading it a thousand 
thousand fold. Don't make me wait here a bit until the flame gets closer to us. You see how I lean out with desire toward them. Such eagerness and using such a loaded word, desire. We want to talk about that in just a second. Let's just step back a moment and ask what's going on here. Why wouldn't they be able to speak? The pilgrim says, if they're able to speak in those flames, Master, I mean, have we met a sinner yet who cannot speak? Even Pope Nicholas III, upside down in his hole with the Simoniacs, could speak. Why this sudden idea that maybe they can't speak, unless, of course, the poet is signaling to us, perhaps, that their being able to speak, that Ulysses and Diomedes being able to speak is key to understanding who they are. And in fact, that will play out. You can see from this kind of eagerness, don't make me wait, you lean out with, I lean out with desire. You can see why so many in the commentary tradition believe that the pilgrim already knows who's in the flames. And now, of course, at this point, we know he does in fact know because Virgil has told him. But even before that, many say that the pilgrim is kind of uh, holding back he clearly knows because he's just so eager. Let's humanize this a moment. Wouldn't Dante the poet and Dante the pilgrim yearn to know Ulysses? Dante doesn't know Homer. Dante can't read the Odyssey the way you and I might be able to in a translation now, or if you're lucky, in the original Homeric Greek. But okay, we can go and get a good translation of the Odyssey and sit down, have a big time reading it. Dante can't do that. He wants so badly to know who this figure is. I've told you that this figure, Ulysses, appears in so many other places. Horace, Cicero, Virgil. I went down the big list in the last episode of this podcast. How many other sources Dante knows that have Ulysses in it? And yet, at the same time, he doesn't have the urtext, the original story. We can feel that yearning toward wanting to know what he can't know. He knows it's there. He knows about Homer. Remember, Homer's in limbo as the first of the poets. He knows about Homer, but he doesn't know Homer's works. And so you can feel this yearning in the same way. Remember back in limbo, I told you that half of the figures he sees once they get up in that castle, he looks down on the, the emerald green grass, and half of the figures he sees he wouldn't have known at all. So it's actually seeing figures in limbo that you know, Greek philosophers, and also figures that you wish you knew, that you've heard about, that you've read about secondhand in other works, but you don't have any direct access to them. And so there is this yearning, and we can feel the yearning here, so much so that Dante uses a very loaded word for comedy, desire. Let's talk about that for a second. Here we have Diomedes and Ulysses, or Ulysses and Diomedes, depending on which way you want to put them. But Ulysses probably should come first. Ulysses and Diomedes inside this flame. And they remind us of somebody else, of Francesca and Paolo, because Ulysses is going to do all the talking in the same way that Francesca 
did all the talking. And Francesca and Paolo are the last time we saw a twinned set of sinners. We've seen, of course, Ferranata and Cavalcanti. It's not that we haven't seen the three homosexuals circling each other out on the sands, but this idea of two souls bound together for eternity the way Francesca and Paolo are and now the way Ulysses and Diomedes are links them in a very special way and if you remember Francesca's whole speech is about love love made me do it love made me basically fall in love with my husband's brother it's funny that the word desire comes up here echoing us back in some strange ways to Francesca and Paolo. And partly we should say that Ulysses will be as seductive as Francesca ever was. They are this strange link. And beyond that, this word desire is so loaded in comedy. We will eventually learn that desire is the fundamental human motivation. It's why Beatrice stands as Dante's siren, calling him higher and higher. When Beatrice finally enters the poem way at the back of Purgatorio, she will become the fulfillment of that desire. And it is that desire, and dare I say it, even sexual desire for Beatrice that lures Dante on. This is Dante's major point, that human desire, including sexual desire, is the conduit by which humans find God. And if you don't hear how revolutionary that is, even pre-Victorians, you live post-Victorians, so of course you hear it as revolutionary, but it's even revolutionary pre-Victorians that this impulse, desire, is at the very foundation of why humans strive, yearn, journey, push forward, push to what they can't know, and ultimately, for Dante, push to God on in the passage. And he to me, Virgil, replied to Dante, the pilgrim, your prayer is loaded with value, thus I accede to it, but see that your tongue is bridled. Virgil has cued us right here that language and its uses, those are the problems inside this canto, including, as we will see, literary uses of language. Language is central to fraud. Let's just make sure that we understand that. Language is absolutely central to the eighth pit of hell. We, uh, let's listen. There have been so many big talkers in the eighth pit of hell, not just big talkers who performed for us as the hypocrites did and as that barrator in the mucky, slimy ooze did, but instead others, flatterers, seducers, pimps, these are all people who use language in one way or another to commit fraud. And we shouldn't wonder then that Dante the poet connects his own work so closely to fraud that he swears on the beast of fraud that he really saw all of 
of this and that fraud gets so connected with his naming of the comedy. Remember this? Early on as we descend to the eighth pit of hell that we shouldn't be surprised by any of this because language is intrinsic to the sin of fraud. It's how this sin gets conducted. The next sin ahead of us is treachery, which is a much different kind of fraudulence. Treachery doesn't necessarily involve language, although of course it does. Treachery much more involves knives and swords in ways to kill people. But to simply defraud them, mostly you resort to language. And so Virgil is calling our attention to language as the problem here. Hey, pilgrim, make sure your tongue stays bridled. And let me say, Ulysses' tongue will be anything but bridled. Make sure your tongue stays bridled. Make sure you keep it in your head because after all, the tongue is this instrument of destruction as we find in the epistle of James in the New Testament as we've already talked about. It is the rudder on a ship that can lead it to its own destruction and the pilgrim here is getting very close to destruction. In fact, as we saw a couple episodes ago, almost falling into the pit. On in the passage. Virgil continues, let me do the talking. I understand exactly what you want. Still, because they're Greeks, they might be scornful of what you might say. I love this bit. It's so Virgilian. It's so those nasty Greeks and their nasty ways. (laughs) They might be scornful of you, a simple man who speaks Florentine. Give me a break here. Okay, I want to back up and talk about the commentary here. For a long time, there has been much talk in commentary, and this started very early on, soon after the comedy was published. There has been much talk that Virgil must speak Greek. After all, he says, don't talk to them. They're Greeks. They're going to scorn you. And then Virgil it conti- uh, continues on to address them. Many commentators have said, oh, look, Virgil speaks Greek. No, I don't think so. Here's why. Because when we get to the 27th canto ahead of us, the next center to appear on the scene will say to Virgil, I heard you speaking in the Lombard dialect. Virgil's not speaking Greek to them. It's interesting then that they can speak to each other. After all, Ulysses and Diomedes must speak Greek. Virgil is, we're going to find out, speaking in the Lombard dialect. How can they speak to each other? Well, I wonder if it goes back to that notion of Pentecost. Remember I told you that the tongues of fire in Pentecost may be being parodied here, and these sinners are in those tongues of fire that descend on the apostles' heads at Pentecost and allow them to preach the gospel in many languages? Well, I'm not saying that Virgil somehow suddenly has Pentecostal fire and that somehow at this moment the Pentecostal fire descends on him and on Ulysses and Diomedes and they can speak each other's language miraculously. I'm not saying that, but I am saying that maybe that Pentecostal imagery is still sitting back behind the text, that these figures who wouldn't speak the same language still and nonetheless are able to speak to each other. So the metaphor kind of fleshes out in front of us without necessarily making any reality claims to it. And also, we might say that Virgil speaks their language because Ulysses is an epic 
hero, and Virgil wrote the epic The Aeneid. They do speak the same language. They speak epic. That will play out at the end of this broadcast even more fundamentally. Let's go on to the passage. When the flame got close enough, where it seemed to my guide their right time and place, I heard him speak in this manner. <laughs> Stop right there. So patience was called for. The pilgrim said, please don't make me wait here until the flame gets closer. <laughs> you know, call him over, get him over here, do it fast. Hurry, hurry, hurry. My desire makes me lean out toward them. And yet here we have an example of patience. They do wait until the flame gets close enough to talk. And it is the right time and the right place. Remember early on in this canto, we had that whole bit about how you have to mm, temper talent with virtue. Is this a further commentary on that, that the pilgrim who is slowly turning into the poet over the course of of comedy. That is the story of comedy, right? That this pilgrim who walks across the universe slowly becomes the poet who can tell the story of the walk across the universe. Is this signaling us that still the pilgrim is not ready, that his talent is still not tempered by virtue, and that Virgil still acts as a kind of tempering agent. Because although the pilgrim says, you know, don't make me wait, <laughs> get him over here, hurry, 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 it seems like Virgil is in no hurry. And when Virgil starts to speak, he's really in no hurry. Oh, you, Virgil says, who are actually two inside one fire, if I merited, watch the flattery here, if I merited anything from both, from you both while I lived, if I merited anything from you, whether great or small, when in the world above I wrote my high verses, oh, notice not only the flattery, but the aggrandizement, we speak the same language. We are part of high poetry. We are part of the epic tradition. And, you know, surely you, although you lived long <laughs> before me, surely you down here have heard of me, the great Virgil. This is a very intriguing passage because why would Ulysses and Diomedes know anything about Virgil? They would have died centuries before Virgil. How do is it that they know this figure and yet somehow it seems as if Virgil's flattery and aggrandizement putting himself into their tradition of high verse, nothing's higher verse than Homer, putting himself in their tradition of high verse, it works because Ulysses is going to speak. So Virgil's plea is based on literary merit. Talk to me because I wrote high verse. Talk to me because I did things worthy of your praise. Talk to me because I'm standing here, the great classical poet, and you are great classical figures. We speak the same language. We should just pause here and say, 
that there's a little funkiness here, right? Virgil is up in limbo. Ulysses isn't up in limbo. Shouldn't Ulysses be up? I mean, Aeneas is up there. Shouldn't uh, Ulysses be up in limbo? But no, Ulysses is way down here in lower hell. Virgil has already told us why Virgil thinks they're down here. Virgil's told us all about what they did based on what Virgil knows from his own epic, the Aeneid, and other literary sources, the Trojan horse, the Palladium, everything we did in the last episode. What we're going to find out is that's not actually why Ulysses is down here. Virgil's got his hobby horse about why these dastardly Greeks who did the Trojans in, the Trojans who ultimately became the Romans and the Roman Empire, which Virgil had such great admiration for, sort of, but that's a whole Virgil class in and of itself, which Virgil, let's just leave it as the simplistic Virgil had such admiration for yuck that's too simplified but okay anyway that that roman empire thing that the trojans became just so intriguing that virgil's explanation for their being in hell lies with the epic story that virgil and others know ulysses is going to tell a story no one knows let's finish off the passage Hang back here a moment, Virgil says, pleading for them to hang a minute. After all, these are such revered, austere, and fabulous characters that, you know, you kind of have to be flattering of them to get them to stick around. And one of you, and this is what's so interesting, one of you tell where, lost by his own hand, he met his death. I should tell you that this sentence in the Florentine is unbelievably contorted. The the linguistics of this sentence falls all over themselves in the Florentine. And I tried to make the sentence a little awkward in English. One of you tell where, lost by his own hand, he met his death. I mean, it does make sense in the Florentine and it makes sense in my translation, but it's still not fluid, it's not mellifluous as a line, and it's not in the Florentine either. But many commentators take this line as a joke. That is, Virgil praises his own high poetry, and then the last thing Virgil says in this canto, this is Virgil's end bit, the last thing Virgil says is is just so contorted. It's not elegant high verse. It's all twisted on itself as if he's trying to uh, I, what, I talk grandiose. That's what some critics say. As if he's trying to give it some kind of faux polish. That's what some critics say. As if Virgil himself is embarrassed in the face of Ulysses. Because after all, Virgil would hate Ulysses as one of the Greeks who did the Trojans in. Is that it? It's intriguing. And furthermore, Virgil must know something. I, it, I mean, listen, what, what I already told you, Virgil told the story already of Ulysses and Diomedes and the Trojan horse and Achilles and the Palladium. But now Virgil is asking about how you met your own death. The story of Ulysses and, or Odysseus, either one, but Ulysses in Virgil's language, the story of Ulysses is so well known that Virgil wants to know the part that no one knows. <laughs> Get it? Virgil wants to know the part that no one can know. We all know 
Virgil, assuming here, knows part of the Homeric story. And Dante would know parts of the Homeric story without actually ever having read Homer. So Dante knows that Ulysses, or Odysseus, comes home to Penelope. That's It's a circular thing. He leaves Ithaca, goes out in the world, has the whole Trojan War and the destruction of Troy, and comes back to Penelope. What don't we know? We don't really know what happened to Ulysses afterwards. And Virgil is asking here for them to tell at least we're assuming here he's really asking for Ulysses to tell that which no one would know. And you've just got to hold this in your mind for when Ulysses speaks. Virgil is asking for uncharted waters. Virgil is asking for what no story of Ulysses necessarily tells that Virgil would know and certainly none that Dante would know. Virgil wants to know what happens after you came home. That seems to be that Virgil knows something, is tipping a hand, or Virgil, as well as the pilgrim, want to know what they can't know. The pilgrim wants to know a character from Homer who he knows about but can't fully know from the original text, and Virgil, too, wants to know something that he, presumably having read Homer, although that's a huge assumption, presumably having read Homer, something that he doesn't know. They're all looking for uncharted waters. Man, I am setting this thing up for all it's worth. Okay, let me stand back from this passage and make a comment about it in terms of literary criticism. Before I make this comment, let me just say, don't make fun of my Hungarian pronunciation. (laughs) pronunciation. Please don't make fun of my Hungarian. But I want to talk about the literary critic Georgi Lukács. Um, I generally call him Georg in German, Lukács, because Georg is so much easier for me to say than any attempt to say his first name in uh, in uh, Hungarian or any kind of Hungarian I could muster. So please forgive me. Anyway, okay, <laughs> I want to talk about what Lukács said about the comedy because it's incredibly important. Lukács was a literary critic, a Marxist literary critic from the mid-20th century toward the latter part of the 20th century. Actually, Lukács functions big in my dissertation. Um, It's not his Marxism that functions big, but it's his notion of the novel and what the novel is. He used a kind of materialistic criticism to get here. I don't really hold to the materialistic criticism part of it, but I do hold to what he gets to. And here it is. Lukács claims that Dante wrote the last epic and the first novel. What does he mean by that? It's a very great phrase and one you should hold in your head as we move forward. Dante wrote the last epic and the first novel. What he means by that is that epics are by and large circular. Think of Odysseus again. You leave a place and you come back to that place. Or because epics begin in medius res, in the middle of things, they inevitably find a place where they circle back to their beginning and then can go forward. And there is a 
basic circularity in the epic form. Um, this doesn't play out so well with the Aeneid, but kind of. If you just take the idea that that an epic starts in the middle of things in Medius Race, then you know that it has to go backwards and then come back to that spot where it started in the middle of the plot and then go forward from there. So there is a kind of built-in circularity. Lukash would claim, or did claim in fact, that novels no longer privileged, to use the fancy literary term, they no longer privileged circularity, but novels privileged linearity. And the journey that Dante is on is without a doubt a linear journey. We start out in the dark wood, Maybe it's in Medius race, but we never really come back around to explain how the pilgrim or why the pilgrim ended up in that dark wood, although there are hints. There was hints, I think, in the wood of the suicides. There the hints dropped throughout the poem, more to come even in Purgatorio, of how the pilgrim ended up there. But we never really go back and have the whole story the way we would in an epic. Instead, Dante's comedy is a linear trajectory from down below in the wood where Virgil saves him all the way up at Paradiso to the presence of God. And Lukash would claim that that linearity is the foundational structure of novels. In novels, the way they work is that A is the cause of B, B is the cause of C, C is the cause of D. Novels work on a linear consequentiality. Those are big words, sorry. But they work on a linear structure of causal sequencing. <laughs> more big words. I can't do this without big words. Sorry. They exist in a way in which a causal structure, A leads to B leads to C leads to D, causes the plot to erupt. If you think about any 19th century, big 19th century novels, Karenina, um, War and Peace. If you think about Brothers Karamazov, there's this unrelenting linearity. Middlemarch, there's an unrelenting linearity underneath the text itself. Of course, this gets broken apart by Faulkner and Wolf and Strindberg and other modernists. Of course, it all gets pulled apart by other characters. But the fundamental notion of the novel is its linearity. And I think that holds here. And let me push this one step further. I think Lukash is right. Dante wrote the last epic in Western literature and the first novel. And this passage is exactly one of the places I would point to to prove it to you because, here's why, because this passage exhibits tantric structure. Let me explain that. Remember tantric sexuality that you hold back and hold back and don't release and don't release and don't release and you keep edging up toward fulfillment and then you keep falling back. Remember what tantric sexuality is? Novels exist on a tantric structure. You want to know what happens next and one of the jobs of a novelist is to keep edging you forward and then pulling back and edging you forward and pulling back or to use other words to advance the plot and then 
delay it, and then advance the plot, and then delay it. This is how novels work. They work on an essential, especially linear novels, they work on an essential tantric structure. And this passage is a delaying mechanism. It's even about desire, right? He said, you see, I lean out with desire toward them. So do we. We want to hear Ulysses. Oh my God, can we please get to Ulysses, please? We're yearning to hear it too from this great classical figure. We're aligned with the pilgrim and the delay that happens here for the pilgrim, which is tempering his talent with virtue, I would argue, is what the passage is trying to do to us. It's trying to hold our desire in a state of, um, what shall I say, buzz, in a state of, of oscillation, in a state of excitement, right there and hold it. And then this passage backs away. And we have to have this conversation between Virgil and Dante, thereby elucidating, further showing us the basic tantric structure that is a function of the linearity of plot that is inherent to the form of the novel. And beyond that, our desire for Ulysses is very similar to the pilgrim's desire. Our impatience in this passage and Virgil's overly flattering speech is probably reminiscent of the pilgrim's own impatience. And our impatience is about to pay off because in the next episode of the podcast, Walking with Dante, Ulysses will step on the scene and there will be no more tantric delays. Instead, we're going to get a fulfillment bigger than we could imagine. We're going to have several episodes on Ulysses' speech we need to give it its due. It's as big as Francesca's speech. It's as big as Brunetta Latini's speech. And it actually calls forward bits of both Latini's speech and Francesca's speech. Subscribe to this podcast. Rate it. Like it. I really appreciate a rating. And even more, thank you very much. Appreciate a comment on whatever platform you listen to this on. And when you hear my voice next, <laughs> you're going to hear the voice of Ulysses. Oh, i got to think that one through. How am I going to voice Ulysses? Anyway, when you hear my voice next, it's going to be the voice of Ulysses. So I cannot wait. I'm Mark Scarborough. This is Walking with Dante. And I will see you then. Mm-hmm.